Hello, advance warning not to get distracted midway through this episode by the classic sound of an English summer. Yep, an ice cream van rudely passes by midway through, tempting us all with their twisters and their feasts and their screwballs and their 99s, but I'm afraid it's just not on. Um, The budget doesn't stretch to it, so stay where you are, let them get on with it, and we'll get on with the pod. Welcome to Sport and the Feels, in association with Aldi UK, official supermarket partner of Team GB. Well, my co-host for this episode is John Inverdale, returning to the series. Hi, John. All right? I'm very well, thank you very much. Yep. Good, good, good. We're still keeping people hanging on for that Simply Red story, aren't we, that you teased us with in the Ian Dark episode. Yeah, Barcelona. Um, are we going to have time in this one, or do you think we should leave people waiting a little I bit I think more? leave them waiting, but 1992, I mean, Simply Red were, <laughs> let's face it, Mick Hucknall has just got the most amazing voice, but in 1992, it didn't get much bigger than Simply Red. And yeah. all I can say stars. is... This, this was around the time of stars, It was. It? All I can say, this story involves Simply Red, Simon Bates, and six tickets in the front row at Wembley Arena. Right. And there's a Barcelona 92 connection somewhere. Um, <laughs> uh, that's called a tease. That's called a tease in Radioland. <laughs> uh, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll keep you hanging until the next time John's on. Right, in this episode, what are we going to be talking about? We're going to be talking about lots of things, actually, that are all quite intertwined. We're going to be talking about pressure, the idea of performing at your best when it really matters, uh, personal bests. Uh, The idea of being inspired, inspired to deliver that best performance, but also being inspired to get into sport in the first place. And that's something you've got quite strong feelings on, John, isn't it? Uh, Because it's something we talk about in broadcasting a lot. Yeah, we do all the time. But I think you only have to look at participation figures and things like that. You know, London 2012, to me, was the opportunity to make three hours of physical activity. It's not sport. It's a physical activity. Three hours of physical activity, compulsory, every, you know, for every school child in this country to make the, the health and the well-being of the individual absolutely key and centre to how we live our lives. And that opportunity was not taken. And if you look at some participation in some sports in 2011, even though the population has gone up, there are less people doing those sports now than there were a decade ago. So I think, I think you know, it's a very interesting discussion if you're spending X million on elite athletes to, to inspire people to take part in sport, mm. would that money be better spent on X number of PE teachers who in many ways mm. are often the people, talk to Kelly Holmes, in many ways are the people who actually are the catalyst for making people realise the talent that they have. And there's no right and wrong answer to that, but I actually often think that 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 debate is not had because we in the media often find ourselves as trumpet blowers and standard bearers for something because we have the broadcast rights to it or whatever it might be, when actually there's always a bigger issue. Mm, yes. Very, very interesting. So on the funding model thing, you, you fundamentally disagree with the idea that giving money to elite athletes, because if those elite athletes go on to be stars and win medals, that will inspire kids to take up the sport. You, you disagree with that in principle? In principle, I think the people who are going to win the Olympic medals in years to come are people who are probably already playing those sports or playing other sports 
anyway. Now, because they are in the sporting mindset, their parents, their PE teacher, or not necessarily a PE teacher, but a teacher at school who's realised they have physical attributes that will enable them to be successful at one sport or another, they already have people within their close circle who are the absolutely fundamental people who will enable them to get to the starting line. Whether they win anything or not will be influenced by whether they want to be Jess Hill or whether they want to be Usain Bolt or whether they want to be Steve Redgrave or whoever it might be. But I I personally, and I've never felt it was true, that if you are sitting at home on the sofa and you watch somebody win a gold medal in the modern pentathlon, you instantly want to go and pick up a gun, jump on a horse, run round a field, and say, I want to be a, pent- a modern pentathlete. I don't think, in that instance, one begats the other. No. V- visibility is good for the sport. Publicity is good for the sport. But uh, you're, you're right. It, it's a separate, uh, separate debate, isn't it? And that, that's why I'm interested to speak to our guest today, because so much of the, the funding model, of course, is based around actually winning medals but but what if you can't get that medal but you can do your absolute best you can achieve everything that you can in other words your personal best okay it might not be good enough for a medal but isn't that john all we can ask of our athletes well that's the perfect cue isn't it for our guests today because if ever there's anybody who maxed out on the biggest stage of all it is her let's bring her in then in 2008 in beijing china she reached the final of the women's 100 meters she ran her personal best through the rounds but bettered it in the final you really can't do much more can you now she's trackside interviewer for the bbc so we'll have a new pressure when she goes to tokyo next year she's jeanette kwachi Hi, Jeanette. Welcome to the pod. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. This is actually really exciting for me. Is it really? <laughs> Why? No, it's not. <laughs> Come on! <laughs> I'll let you into a little secret. I actually sent Jeanette a message saying, which one of our high-powered team would you really like to converse with when we meet up for a chat? And I gave her all the options. And obviously, she said, anyone is fine overs. It's absolutely fine. I'll do Sonia, I'll do Marcus, I'll do Pugas, whoever you want. But top of my list would be John Inverdale. So there we go. Um, and I, I feel like Silla Black. I made it happen. And thank okay. you. Well, if, you could, if you would mind leaving the stage now. and just <laughs> The floor's yours. Anyway, it's, it, it, I, I remember having a, a coffee with you, Jeanette. Do you remember that? Of course. Um, somewhere near Waterloo Bridge with you talking about careers in media and all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff and hey look what happened i know and you were so you know you were really really good of your advice that day and i and i always appreciate it so thank you and as i've had amazing conversations with overs as well about it all and i guess we'll come into it a bit later in the chat but no this is a, this is pretty special for me because you know i rate you both so highly so it's quite nice to to have a chat as friends absolutely. <laughs> yeah absolutely nice. couldn't agree more and look we're going to talk about pressure we're going to talk about the idea of personal best performing at your peak when it really matters and i but i suppose to get to that point jay which in your case is the olympic 100 meters final it doesn't get any bigger i guess we've got to hear a little bit about your story how it how it all began where you came from i mean how did you get into running in the first place Do you know i was really lucky to have like most you know athletes that go professional a PE teacher who was 
really involved in athletics. Her name is Sandy Forrest, who I still speak to her now. She's long retired. She's living up in Scotland. And um, she used to be a photo finish official. And her husband was the local track and field coach. So um, I was a bit wayward at school, you know, a little bit gobby. And uh, she was my head of year. So for her to be able to kind of say to me, look, I think there's a way we could kind of hone this energy in the nicest possible way and uh, she introduced me to track and field and I had a talent for it and I think it's important that you know I let people know that I wasn't always the best you know I didn't go into the junior ranks as somebody who was outstanding there were always women and girls that were faster than me so I had to work a little bit harder and I guess actually that probably worked in my favour because I then became used to success and failure as opposed to just constant success so I I did have to work and that that made me a lot more determined to be able to make this work um in the long run as well so that's kind of how my journey started and then um I headed off to Loughborough like most uh student athletes do and that's where I I picked up a degree in politics don't ask and then (laughs) off the back of that thought I'd uh (laughs) I'd, I'd try and make it as a professional athlete you should be an MP. No. <laughs> no way. Oh, I became so disillusioned with it all at uni. I said, this is not for me at all. <laughs> it's quite interesting. So studying it for that length of time actually made you go off it. Absolutely, yes, Jonathan. And I think also, you know, especially the times we're living in now, you really see it for what it is. You know, you learn the history of it, then you see how it's impacted modern day. And I said, yeah, I'm not about this. This is, I'm happy to run in a straight line for as fast as I can for now. <laughs> yeah, but listen, Jeanette, the only way you can change things is by being on the inside of the tent, not on the outside and just railing at things. So you see, with your political degree, you see, you are the absolute perfect person. <laughs> Come on, you are the perfect person who should be out there saying, right, this is my manifesto, this is what I think, this is what we're going to do. No, 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 you guys can't convince me, it's not happening. Uh, she's, she's not ruling it out, Jonathan. Well, when you're sports minister in 20 years' time, I'll remind you this conversation. Yeah, we'll play this back at that, at that point. Yeah. It's interesting, John, isn't it, hearing Jeanette's start in athletics there, because we were having a chat, weren't we, about this whole idea of being inspired to get into sport and and I think we're both in agreement that actually kids get into sport either because of a parent or both parents or because of a teacher that that's why they get into sport John isn't it yeah and I think actually I think we in the media we sometimes talk about you know Olympic success but any success really you know inspiring a generation and things like that I really do think that that's kind of often lazy broadcasting uh, it's an easy cliche to reach for everybody tomorrow morning is going to be picking up an epe and going out to be a fencer i'm sorry they aren't people become top sports people a because they have a an absolute fierce competitive streak and a resolution within them that Jeanette's outlined already but actually they have to have someone who lights that spark and keeps kindling it the whole time and that invariably is either a pe teacher or a parent, because the parent has to be the person who takes them. I mean, stories are countless, aren't they, of of a gymnast who lived in the middle of nowhere and who a parent had to take four times a week to 
I don't know, Gateshead or Bolton mm. or wherever it might be. Just go. So Judy, might, Judy I, Murray, classic example, driving well, them over the border into England because there weren't enough opponents in, in Scotland. Yeah, absolutely. If I, if I could actually just say, I mean, I, I was at Stamford Bridge the first weekend of this Premier League season just gone. And uh, I was sat next door to this guy. I'd no, I'd no idea who he was. And when the teams ran out, he, he clenched his fist and a, and a small tear, I could see a small tear came down his eye. And I, and I just said, excuse me, have you got a, a vested interest in this? And he said, yeah. He said, I'm Mason Mount's dad. Oh, and wow. there was Mason Mount running out at Stamford Bridge for the first time. He'd been in the Chelsea Academy since forever. The family come from Portsmouth, yes, I think. Do, yeah. And anyway, but his dad had been driving him up from Portsmouth to Chelsea's Academy two, three, four times a week. You know, from the age of, I don't know, six, seven, eight, whatever it was. And this was the moment when all that commitment came to pass. Mm. Fundamentally, you've got to have that support network who are going to help you through the good times and the bad. I'm sure Jeanette would go with that all the way, wouldn't you? Absolutely. I was very lucky in that my parents... um, they, they understood how much track and field meant to me. They, they saw actually as a child how much it helped with my attainment at school also. So it, it, it came at a time where it was needed for me as a, as a young girl to make sure that I could just keep a level head. You know, I'm an East London girl. I have so many distractions around me at the time. So it was a really good idea for me to be part of that. And, you know, when we speak about the Olympics further down the line in this conversation, you know, one thing I will never, ever forget is the day that I left to to go to Beijing, um, you know, team kit on, bags packed. My dad gave this really... <laughs> funny speech just as I was leaving and the one thing that he said that really resonated with me goes when you get there I don't want you to think about anything else I just want you to run and that for me was just so pure in the sense that that's the job you're going to do you don't need to think about anything else what's happening at home what your sponsors are saying you just go there and run and do all the things that you've been doing and in my post-race interview after the final that's the one thing I remember saying to Phil Jones my dad just told me to come here and run and that's exactly what I've come to do so it's really key that that support network is there for you all the time and my parents of course are my biggest fans and you know as I've moved through from retirement into where I am now, they still champion me in the same way and it's just making sure that you keep a level head and they're the ones who tell you what's wrong from right. Hey, Jeanette, can I ask you, uh, because, you know, when things go wrong and when you do get distracted and you say, you know, I'm not sure I want to go training tonight, it's a very fine line, the relationship between teacher and pupil, if you like, in this instance, parent and child. It's a very fine line between giving someone their head and letting them find that space and then going back to find track and field in your case because that's what they feel drawn to and also saying, no, you're damn well going because I know how much it means to you and if you don't go training, that you're going to run 43.3 as opposed to 40, 42.9. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, 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 and how you get that trust and that relationship is very difficult but you have to somehow come back and find that equilibrium in the middle. Do you know what, Invers, what's really interesting about that is that for my parents and probably for my benefit, they were none the wiser. They didn't really understand 
how much training would reflect in terms of performances. So if there was a time where I didn't feel like doing things, I never felt pressured from parents to be able to go and do that because they were a bit like, okay, she doesn't want to go today. That can't be the end of the world. They didn't really understand the fine margins. And not a lot of people know that I actually stopped track and field from the age of 15 right through to about 17 and a half. I didn't do anything. And, you know, my parents were a bit like, okay, do you miss it? I was like, no, not really. And they just let me take my time and understand the journey I needed to go on to be able to go back to the sport. So there was actually no pressure from mum and dad to be able to go out there and do it. But at the same time, they almost wanted me to be able to have that journey myself and realise for myself. And, you know, credit to them. That's actually quite good parenting to be patient enough to see if your child will return back to what they know or what they feel they're good at. So when you went back onto the track at 17 and a half or something and you ran your first race, did you, did you suddenly think... Oh, you idiot! <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you, 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 what, what were you thinking? Exactly that. Or, or did it, did it, did it, did it, it rekindled a fire? No, I thought, I thought, I thought, Jeanette, you idiot, you've taken too long to come back, and that's exactly <laughs> what I, I knew. And I, it was really frustrating because what I did do in Viz is I missed a big chunk of my junior career, a big, big chunk of that. Um, so I had a bit of catching up to do. But again, I was really fortunate to go back to, to coaches who understood me and who understood you know, what I needed to do to, to make teams. And I made my, my first junior team in my final year of a jun- as a junior and we ended up going to Jamaica for our first World Juniors. So it was a, an amazing trip and a, and a real turning point for me as a young athlete because it's actually where I saw Usain Bolt for the first time. He was, really? he was 15. Yeah, he won his first World Juniors at 15 years old in that Kingston Stadium. And as we know, Jamaicans, they live for athletics. They pack that stadium out for a World Junior Championships. 40,000 people came to that championships. And I was just in awe of this kid at 15 running 20.6. And that changed my life because me seeing that made me think, right, I want some of this. I know that actually when I get back to the UK, every decision I now make has to be to be able to feel like that on a track. So that was a really important trip for me. Did he have that personality and that kind of charisma even then? Could you sense there was more to him than just an athlete? Absolutely, because I'll tell you what he did. He, he ran 20.6 at a home, home World Junior Championships, crossed the line, and the roar in the stadium, the whole stadium was chanting his name, Bolt, 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 and he stood 15 metres out, 20 metres out from the finish line and saluted the crowd. And I have never in my life seen somebody that confident (laughs) at 15. And I thought, this kid's going to be a star. And look where we are now, you know, fastest man ever. So uh, that... In the juniors. I mean, can you can you imagine that in visit Junior Wimbledon or something like that? If that was a British a British kid, we we we'd say stop doing that. It's all up. You're going to create no, too no, much I, pressure. And I can hear, I can show, see every it? parent, almost every parent, especially you know, middle class parent in England, uh, who if their child did that, they get home that evening and say. Well, well done, and congratulations, and that's a very nice medal, but don't you ever dare do anything like that ever again. (laughs) (laughs) This is Sport in the Fields, in association with Aldi UK, official supermarket partner of Team GB. We're in conversation with Jeanette Quarchi, 
who, going by the list of season's best times over 100 metres in 2008, didn't have a right to be contesting the final. But she was there. She was there thanks to career best times through the rounds. And then in the final, her personal best of 11.14 seconds. Reflecting now, is it possible to explain how an athlete can be driven to produce their absolute best when it matters the most? I think overs, when I look back at it now, you know, it's just 12 years ago, I think and I look at that as a perfect storm. There were a number of elements that came together at the right time. And uh, I'm a big believer of everything coming together at the right time. I had an amazing coach who knew how to peak athletes very well, who knew me very well and who knew what would make me tick in the lead up to that. So it's a combination of making sure that your training camp is spot on. It's a combination of mentally, when you wake up that morning, where is your head at? You know, have you woken up on the right side of bed knowing that you're, you've come here to do a task? There were a number of years worth of training that I had to put into two days and I had to keep on reminding myself actually you know what Jeanette these two days are now here so do you run away from it or do you run towards it so part of that perfect storm also includes an athlete's personality I'm not a wallflower as you both probably know but at the same time I had to really understand that that level of self-arousal in uh, at an Olympic Games had to be controlled. You can't go in too excited. You can't go in feeling underwhelmed. Can you hear the ice cream van <laughs> behind me? I'll, I'll have a 99. Thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> Just heard the ice cream van go behind me, so I'm trying to tell you my story. No, carry on. But, um, <laughs> what, I will, <laughs> what I will say is that with all those elements coming together at the right time, it was it was critical and my build-up or my lead-up actually into the Olympic Games wasn't great. I, I'd injured myself slightly at the Olympic trials. So my first race after the Olympic trials to the first round was the first round of the Olympic Games. So there was a six-week period where I didn't race. I couldn't train at capacity. But like I said, I had a coach who knew how to get me ready and, how to, and knew how to help me keep my head. And that's exactly what happened um, during those two days. And I guess, Jonathan, as well, when you think about the semi-final and the final only being three hours apart, that for me was the stuff of dreams because, first of all, I had no right being in that Olympic final. I think I went ranked 33rd going into the Olympic Games. So when you're lining up uh, in an Olympic 100-metre final... Um, with three Jamaicans, three Americans, and a lady from the Bahamas, and there's me from East London, Walthamstow. It 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 really kind of makes you wonder. Wow. Okay. Uh, here we are. Here we go. Uh, let's just let's, let, this is it. Let's have a pop. And um, it was exactly that. And I think that I had nothing to lose. Nobody expected me to be there. And so I thought, you know what? Let's just go for it. And it was that type of attitude that I think you know really pushed me to to excel at, during those two days. Doesn't always work in athletes' favour, John, does it? No, the actually, storm, hearing the pressure. No, hearing Jeanette talking about that. I mean, one of my abiding Olympic memories will be in London, and Zach Purchase and Mark Hunter, who were reigning Olympic champions from Beijing, and everybody expecting them to double up by winning in London uh, in in the rowing. They do this repetitious thing over and over and over again, and you get to 500 meters, and you put on the afterburners. And off you go, and you win. 
And when you're used to winning the whole time, it always works. And then suddenly, on the biggest stage of all, they put their foot down to go for it, and suddenly, you know, it was like the clutch had jammed, and it wasn't there, and they didn't win. And, you know, the interview that became very well-known in the immediate aftermath was of two people who were utterly desolate, who couldn't rationalise why or how, on the biggest stage of all, what had become automatic just hadn't happened. And to see that sense of despair in their eyes uh, is something I'll never forget. And, I, and I'm sure, you know, you've, you've been there, and Jeanette, you will be there, you know, in your new role as, as uh, you know, with a microphone. You will be there on many occasions where you see that. And how you respond to that is a very interesting challenge, actually, in our industry, when all you are, basically, is, you know, is the, the guy or the girl with the mic... But in front of you, you've got somebody either going through the most monumental elation, which you would have been, you know, in in your Olympic final, or at the absolute diametric opposite end of the emotional scale in a complete in, in a hole that they cannot get out of. And there is you asking them damn silly questions. And that's actually, a, it's a difficult place to be. So, so good luck. There's a pep talk for you, Joe. Thanks. Thanks, Invers. <laughs> Cheers. Look, I mean, it leads, it leads very nicely. You know, you've been doing trackside uh, interviews now for, uh, for a couple of years. And, uh, well, you, you should be in Tokyo now, shouldn't you? Preparing for yeah. Tokyo 2020. We very much hope that you're there in, in 2021. So, so how are you finding that, the, the challenge of performing under under pressure with a microphone in your hand rather than with a with a well a baton or something in your yeah hand. you know I, I guess when you, when you step off the track and you're wondering what to do next um I always felt that this was probably the most natural step for me it, it's what interested me the most it was an area that I you know I loved watching and trying to understand as an athlete as well so this is the stuff of dreams you know guys we we're, we're, we're privileged to be able to work in sport travel the world and speak to people my challenge definitely came in the first year or so where I had to take Jeanette the athlete out of myself and try and become Jeanette the journo so what the, the what what came with that was um try not to be too nice about things try not to be a massive cheerleader all the time because I still very much take on the emotion of what the athlete mm. is feeling when they cross the line probably more so than a lot of trackside reporters because I, I've been there I know exactly how that feels especially if things haven't gone to plan so all I ever ask of the athletes is that they're really honest with me you know and if they're in a position where they're inconsolable, I never really want to put them in front of the camera. But then if there are questions that need to be answered, I'll always try to encourage them to use that platform and use that time to be able to do so. So I, I almost feel like a bit of a counsellor sometimes when you're trackside, because I'm probably the first person that you speak to in that moment. You, you haven't spoken to your coach you haven't spoken to parents to anybody and you're coming to explain yourself to me and the nation so it's quite a responsible position to have and one that has to be done properly but I absolutely love it and in Doha last year um, the world championships you know Dina Asher-Smith Katarina Johnson-Thompson it was just that they were brilliant moments for me they were huge moments to see these two young women you know atop of the podium and both of them having their own challenges to be able to get there. And, of course, I was desperately excited for this year. But next year, 
a gift of 12 months has been given. So you'd expect them to be in even better shape going into Tokyo. Fingers crossed. I'm, ju- I'm just wondering, though, and John, maybe you're, you're thinking the same thing at this moment. You say Dina Asher-Smith there. She's going to Tokyo with a, with a great chance, maybe even a better chance given another year. Who, who knows? What if, what if it goes wrong? You, you say you're, you're part councillor. Well, you're also interrogator at that moment, aren't you? The nation is going to want to know mm-hmm. what went wrong. If that's what happens, look, I'm, there's no way I'm suggesting that's going to happen. Not with Dina, she's going to smash it. But you know what, you know what I'm getting at. Absolutely. Do you think you will feel that pressure in that sort of scenario more than being on the blocks in Beijing for the 100 metre final, do you think? Because that, that's tough when you're in, suddenly in that situation. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes, Overs. And like I say, it's a responsible position to be in as well. And I have to understand that those tough questions need to be asked you know I when I retired I you know I made sure that I studied journalism I made sure I understood it and knew what it meant to the people in the audience that were watching so it would be it would be ridiculous of me not to ask the questions in that particular moment especially if a favorite combusts and doesn't do what they're, they're meant to do because I want to know you want to know the nation wants mm-hmm. to know what yeah. went wrong in that moment so it is critical that you have the courage I guess as a former athlete to ask the questions that you desperately don't want to be asked in that moment and it's a skill I'm still learning how to do it but I'd like to think that I do it with a level of empathy but firmness that will get the right answers out of the athletes and this is where your mum comes in again Jeanette honestly what question would your mum ask that's a great benchmark honestly because if you have that as the base you know my mum's watching this and something happens, whatever it might be, what would my mum ask? Because everybody always thinks it's the easiest job in the world, but it sure ain't. It really isn't. So that's Jeanette Kwachi. Very interesting, John, having a, having a chat with her. Um, given what you set out before the interview and hearing her view on it, well, did that change your opinion at all or did it actually reinforce your opinion that teachers and parents are actually the most important in terms of inspiring our kids? Well, you asked her who inspired her, and she, she said her PE teacher. I mean, they are unbelievably important, important individuals. They really are. And it's quite interesting, you know, we, you know we've been to school, we, you know, we've had kids who go to school, and I think there is an element within the teaching fraternity who think that, you know, you teach history and you teach science and you teach this and your, your tech and your whatever it might be, Oh, and they do PE. But actually, PE is just, it's, it's every bit as important as yes. every other subject on the curriculum. And not just in terms of well-being, but because you have the opportunity, if you have the eyes to see, to see individuals with talent that can change their lives. And Jeanette is, is living proof of that. Yeah. And the role of the parents as well, you know, in, in driving, you, know, you know this full well, um, dri- driving our kids to training when you don't want to, in the evenings, to away fixtures, time and time and time again, up and down, up and down. And it may lead absolutely nowhere. But if we don't make that commitment, then the kid doesn't have that opportunity. So shout out to all the parents and teachers out there, right? Absolutely, every single one of them. Although there are those odd moments, actually, where, you know, the 5am swimming training that you have to get up for. And on that wonderful morning when at at half past six, when you're going back home to have breakfast before then going to school, and uh, one of your children says to you, 
I don't want to do this anymore. And you go, oh, really? Are you sure? When actually you're thinking, yes, at last. Thank God for that. <laughs> I've always thought about the swimmers. I mean, the poor, the poor swimmers, because, of course, the pools open to the public, don't they? They, they open to the yeah. public at nine, so they own, they own, or, or even earlier, you know, seven. So they, they have to get in before. So shout out to all the swimmers out there. Look, I'm really interested, just before we go, to explore a little bit more of the aftermath of that famous interview that you talked about with Zach Purchase and Mark Hunter, because it was an interview, as you say, which got an awful lot of attention... Um, not just for their reactions, but for your reactions as well. It got you, didn't it? it? It hit you that moment. And I'm just wondering, for a man who had many times been in that situation over a very long and distinguished career, what, what was it about that moment in particular which got you? Well, I suppose in a way, you know, you'd been on their journey, to use that awful phrase, and, you know, you'd been there every step of the way, all the way to their triumph in Beijing, all the way to their expected triumph in London. And nothing in sport is a gimme. But there was a generally perceived wisdom that they would win because they were the best crew. And then it didn't happen. And I liked both of them enormously. And they'd been fantastically helpful to us over the course of, of eight years, um, which does matter as well because, you know, some sports are very easy to access the athletes, some are less so. Some can be obstreperous, some can be obstructive, some can be just a complete pain in the proverbial. And some people just give of themselves. They understand that this is their, their moment, if you like, when if they don't give of themselves, then ultimately they're cutting off their noses despite their faces. But they've been a fantastically helpful pair, you know, at, at regattas all over the world. And here they were on home soil about to win a second gold medal and it was going to be a moment of triumph that we would have been sharing with them and of course it wasn't and I think you've got to be pretty hard-hearted in those situations to not feel emotionally involved as well and I did lose it and I'm and, and part of me thinks I, I, I probably should have lost it a bit more but I had that thing in the back of my head that whatever you do you've got to be BBC and mm. stiff up a lip, you know. You would 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 cry, John. Would would cry. would Alvar Liddell have cried in this situation? You know, what would Lord Reith think? <laughs> and so, all the I was fighting my inner whatever. When actually, what I wanted to do was just to burst into tears and say, "I don't care what the next race is, but whatever it is, here it is." But of course, you can't do that. So you're then frantically looking at your notes, going, "What is the next race?" Because I've completely lost the thread of whatever we're doing. Because in front of you, you've got two people who've kind of lost the thread in their life at that moment, because their yes. life was geared to or towards that moment of impending triumph, and it's become. The dream has become a nightmare. So it was a, it was a very interesting moment to be part of. But they still have an Olympic gold medal from four years earlier and never let that be forgotten as well. It's a very interesting subject. It's got me thinking, uh, and I think we should do an episode on it um, because I know exactly what you're talking about. And, of course, interviewing so many tennis players, and in particular Tim Hemmen and Andy Murray, so many times over the course of their career, if you don't win the tournament you end up losing a match somewhere. So your final interview with these people is more often than not, the vast majority of the times, after a defeat. And you do find yourself dangling your microphone there, thinking, I, I need to connect with this person on, on a human level. 
because you're going to disappear off into the Parisian night or wherever it may be, with that defeat hanging over you, with your your words to some interviewer, almost like the last contact you've had with any human being. Yes, we like to think that the coach is there for them, but the coach is possibly down the pub at this point in time already. And I, I think, John, we should do an episode on this because I think that human side is sometimes overlooked. We look at these athletes, we think they're superstars. In many sports, they're very rich superstars, but they're also human beings, and sometimes that can be tough. They are human beings, and also even tougher are the... I mean, I really do hate the word journeyman, but, but the people who make up the sport, they may not be the stellar figures who make the seven-figure sums, but without them, there is no sport. And week in, week out... They spend, you know, in, in tennis being a classic example, week in, week out, they spend most of their lives losing. That's a hard world to inhabit. And when you've got someone who just comes up to them when they've lost 6-4, 6-3 to somebody ranked 80 places above them in the world, and, and you sense as well that people at home are going, oh, another first-round defeat for X. You want to go, well, hang on a moment. This person is ranked... Even if they're ranked 150 in the world, they're still the 150th best, whatever it might be, in the world. In the world. Not in Stoke-on-Trent. Not in Truro. Not in Hexham. They're the 150th best X in the world. Don't lose sight of that when at this moment of inner despair, they are coming to terms with having been beaten by somebody who's actually better than they are. So I think the human element is something that in our industry we, we should never lose sight of. Great. I'll, uh, I'll fix up an episode and it will come your way in a couple of days. Uh, John Inverdell there giving you a, a masterclass aspiring broadcasters in how to capture uh, the entire nation by just dropping in a couple of towns or cities from one end of the country and the other. From Truro to Hexham and all places in between, you are all welcome on our pod. There you go. Classic Inverdell. Well done. anything to say on that no that's fine and i thought that was the end i thought that was the end <laughs> and don't forget yarmouth <laughs> for the east Ang- anglesey yeah. um fort william <laughs> ben becula and inniskillen i think we're done marvelous sport in the fields is a 94.19 independent production in association with aldi uk the official supermarket partner of team cheap and Invers, I'm about to embarrass you here because I tell this story to many people, but I've never told you. When I was younger and I used to watch BBC Sport, I used to see yourself, Steve Ryder, quite a few of the guys, and, uh, and Des Lynham, of course, and I wrote to all of you when I was young. <laughs> I, I didn't get a reply. Oh, oh God. I oh, oh, no. Oh, I dropped Invers oh. in it right at the end. I know. <laughs> I'm so oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. I, so well. I was thinking, should I say anything? I'm so I'm sorry. Have to sorry. Say it now. No, 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 I listen. I, I, I probably sent it to the wrong address. Yeah, I'm sure that's what it was. You sent it to ITV. <laughs> anyway, listen. I, I, I will see you in Parliament. <laughs> you will not see me in Parliament. <laughs> uh, I don't know. The right honourable Jeanette Kochi. I can see it. <laughs>